Well, we're going to carry on back into um, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was a, a sermon that Jesus preached to a crowd of thousands um, quite early on in his ministry. And um, it was obviously something that, that struck chords because he, he taught, it says, not like the teachers of the law and the scribes and the Pharisees that people were used to listening to, but he taught as one who had authority. And his authority was that he, he brought new clarity to what the Jews had always believed and preached, but he brought it with new, fresh power and direction that cut right to the heart. And so whenever we're working through each of these little paragraphs, um, which is on a different topic each time, we find that it has, each one of them just has a power to penetrate our hearts and to speak to us in ways that we didn't expect. And um, so we're carrying on here in Matthew chapter 5, I think it's on page 1426, is it? And um, we'll, we'll pick up at verse 33. Just read uh, to verse 37. He says, Again you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Well, we're looking at, I think, um, probably what is the most obscure of all these little sections of Jesus' teaching in this chapter. Um, I just need to clarify as we start, what is an oath um, in biblical terms? It's usually a commitment to do something, and usually a commitment to do something for God. So in Numbers 30, earlier in the Bible, um, there was this provision for making oaths. It says, uh, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So that's what Jesus is picking up on. But the reality is that, um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not sure that we, in our normal day-to-day lives, we, we really are used to the whole idea or the language of oath-making, are we? Perhaps because of this passage. It's not cultural for us. Um, I, don't, I don't remember the last time I said, you know, by Jerusalem, I will, I promise to fulfill this thing or other, or by my head, as Jesus says here. Um, Except maybe in the playground. Do you remember when you were a kid? If, if, uh, if someone wanted to verify that what you're saying is really true, they ask you, do you promise? Do you promise? And then you, you might say something like, I cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Did anyone else say that? <laughs> Horrendous thing to say. I don't think I realized how horrible it was at the time. But actually, it has quite a lot of resonance with what biblical oaths were like. Biblical oaths were a way of calling down a curse on yourself... Like that, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, calling down a curse from God if you don't do what you commit to do, or if your word isn't true. So that sort of gives you a little bit of an idea of what Jesus is picking up on here. But as I said, it's not, it's not the most immediately obviously relevant thing to us. But what I, want, I hope you see today is that actually 
this whole subject cuts right to the very core, the very heart of, of the Christian faith in a number of ways, and of our calling. And I, I hope you'll see that. I want to talk to you about three things, um, what Jesus is concerned about. One is, he's rekindling the fear of God. Second is reshaping the image of God. And third, relaying the word of God. Rekindling the, the, the fear of God, reshaping the image of God, and relaying the word of God. So first of all, Jesus' first concern all through this chapter is to do with this rekindling the fear of God. That somehow people's view of God and his holiness had, had diminished. And when it comes to the whole thing of speaking truth, truth-telling... I think we have a lot more in common with Jesus' audience than we realize. We have ways of um, sort of graduating our commitments and our promises from the very, very serious ones to the less serious. And that's exactly what was going on here. So when Jesus is picking up these examples, he talks about swearing by heaven, swearing by earth, swearing by Jerusalem, swearing by your head. He's picking up on the habit people had of grading how, how important their promise was. And then it, 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 that would sort of, sort of correlate to how strongly they would want to commit to it and keep it. So he picks up on this later in, in Matthew 23, when he says, um, he says that you're hypocrites because you say that if you swear by the altar, it's not binding. But if you swear by the gift that's on the altar, it's binding. And he gives another example there. It's like if someone says, I swear by the altar, I will do this. Then you're like, you know, if you read between the lines, you know what that really means. It's not, they're not really that committed. But if I swear by the gift on the altar, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? How, we, how, how the human heart can draw these distinctions. But my, my contention is we do the exact same things today. You think about, um, I think probably if you wanted to work your way up right at the bottom of our sort of honesty scale is that box you click when you sign up for things online it says I have read and understood terms and conditions and then you click it and that's as good as your signature that's a legally binding document I think probably Danny Hutton's the only guy who reads them and um, that's a legally binding document there you are you're entering into a kind of an oath a kind of commitment to abide by the terms and conditions you don't even know what they are so we do the same thing don't we just one up from that is um it's a tendency when you get invited to events on Facebook and you click maybe. And then one up from that is you click yes. It doesn't really mean you're coming. It doesn't mean you're committed. And then we work all the way up through our, our scale of oaths. Right the way up to, I think probably right at the top. It's not marriage because that's, that's become quite cheap these days. But above that is your mortgage. You know you have to pay your mortgage or you lose everything. And so we have our own ways of braiding our honesty. Our commitments, our oaths. And uh, I don't think we're any different from the people Jesus is speaking to. The human heart always works in the same same basic ways. And uh, we always try and find workarounds. Now, what Jesus wants to show them then is this. He wants to show them that God pay attention to, to the same scales we do of less or more serious oaths. God is interested in the details of our lives. So you see here how he, he uses examples. He says, um, don't take an oath by heaven. 
because it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. What he was saying was this, that people knew, because they'd read the Ten Commandments, that if you're going to make a note, you better not use God's name. Because if you break it, then you've blasphemed. And that was a very, very, very serious sin. So instead of saying, I swear on God's name, they say, I swear by heaven. Because that's a little bit less important than God's name. Or I swear by the earth, or I swear by Jerusalem. What Jesus is saying to them is this. He's saying, you don't get it. God owns all of those things. He owns heaven. It's very noisy here today. He owns heaven. He owns the earth. He owns Jerusalem. So to swear by any of those things is as good as swearing by God's very name. And so they might come back and say, well, how about if I just swear by my own head or swear by some part of my body? Not a custom that we, we abide by today, but I assume it was quite common at the time. And Jesus says, you don't even have the power to turn one of your hairs from one color to another. So there was none of this sort of maybe it's Maybelline um, nonsense going on at the time. You do not have the power to change the color of your own hair. So think it through. He's saying God doesn't just own heaven, own earth, own Jerusalem. He owns your head also. So to swear by your head is no less serious than any other kind of oath you could make. Where he's leading to is this. There's one of the writers, John Stott, he wrote this. He says, however hard you try, you cannot avoid some reference to God. For the whole world is God's and you cannot eliminate him from any of it. So you think about commitments that we make. We make commitments with our hands and we sign documents. He's saying God owns the document, the hand and the pen with which you make that commitment. <laughs> you think about the commitments that we make when we click a box on the internet he says God owns the mouse the screen, the box if you can own that box God owns it it's no less binding in God's mind than if you'd sworn by his own name it's interesting isn't it someone needs to unplug that hair the hand dryer I've never known so many women need the toilet at the same time on a Sunday alright get our focus back. Where are we? What I'm trying to get you to is this, that in God's mind, in Christ's mind, there are no casual commitments or white lies. That if you were to swear on your mother's life, that's actually no more binding than just, as Jesus puts it here, saying yes or no. That your word is, is the same, has the same effect because God's interested in the very detail of your life. And this cuts right to the heart of our problem, doesn't it? That our tendency always is to try and make righteousness something vague. So that at one end of a spectrum we have very hard, solid rights and wrongs. And then we have a kind of mushy middle and a graduation all the way through to things that we don't take that seriously. It's one of the reasons why people find it so easy to kind of to self-justify, to justify themselves and say, I've not done any of these things, and therefore I'm righteous. And what Jesus wants to do, you remember the, the verse, verse 20, that kind of set the note for all that he says after. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, 
unless you're perfect, you'll never enter. And we bring that around and think about how easy we break our commitments and tell lies. Jesus wants us to realize that God is very, very much interested in those things. He's interested in whether your word correlates and corresponds with who you are and with your actions. And so, if that's God's standard, He's saying in effect that you and I, we're all, we're all perjurers in God's court. Remember, to commit perjury is to, to make an oath in a court of law and then to tell lies. I experienced this once um, about a year ago, I think it was. Last year at some point, I was... Um, I had to go to court for a car accident that I'd been involved in a couple of years previously. And I'd reversed into another car in a garage. I'd only just got my license. I got it quite late in life. Whatever. I drove a motorbike before that. I'm still quite cool. Um, Anyway, I reversed into another car. And the upshot was that it was kind of like about two, three miles an hour walking pace. And I just nudged the front corner of their car. And the upshot was that this, this, this couple who were in the car... Um, went straight to hospital and got a doctor to sign that they'd been injured in this accident. You know, that they had whiplash because they'd been so violently shaken around and there was bruising and all this kind of stuff that um, they, they claimed. And I w- witnessed them sign on their holy book, sorry, put their hand on their holy book and utter an oath in a courtroom, sat as we were in front of a judge and then spew nonsense. And you imagine how you feel in that situation. As it happened, I was vindicated and um, they, they were exposed and they had to pay the expenses. Uh, a £10,000 plus for, what, for the privilege of going to court. But at, at the time, besides feeling sorry for them, you feel an indignancy. Don't you? How dare you sit there, swear an oath on your holy book and then talk nonsense off the top of your head. And I think what Jesus wants us to realize is, friends, that's exactly what we've done in God's courtroom, as it were, when we were so fast and loose with the truth. Jesus wants to cut in and he wants to rekindle the fear of God in us. That righteousness is not a fuzzy thing. It's a very clear cut thing. Yes, no. The second thing he wants to do has to do with reshaping the image of God. Now, what I mean is this. Why do you think this is one of the, the, the issues that Jesus picks up on? He selects a few key things in this chapter to teach about. He could have taught on anything. There's a lot of stuff he misses out. But for some reason, he picks up on this issue of truth and lies. And I don't think you can really understand why unless you realize that for Jesus, this cuts right to the core of his understanding of there being two kingdoms in this world. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. In John chapter 8, a little bit further on in your Bibles, um, when Jesus is being, being attacked and criticized and disbelieved, he turns it around and speaks to, to the people he's, he's talking to. He says, I, he says to them, I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you've heard from your father. 
And they're immediately very confused. They think, what father is he talking about? Um, God's obviously, Jesus is talking about his heavenly father. And he said, we're, we were, all, we're all brothers. We're all sons of Abraham. And what they do is they say, listen, we're Abraham's children. And Jesus answers them and says, if God were your father, or if Abraham also he'd referenced, you, you'd love me. For I came from God and I'm here. He says, I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Now this is the strongest kind of language that you get in Jesus' teaching. And immediately, it, it doesn't chime with the culture that we live in. We live at a time when... Very few people are willing to speak in terms of truth and lies. I think only perhaps the, the most ardent atheists who want to brandish all religion to be untrue. Generally speaking, most people live in the kind of middle ground whereby we're uncomfortable with talking about truth and lies when it comes to, to religious, religious ideas. Francis Schaeffer was um, an American Bible teacher who moved to Switzerland and opened up a um, a kind of, a kind of, a place for discussion, really. Um, a home, an open home where people could come and go. And thousands of people came and went through his home, and they were confused by this very issue. They were confused by the fact that we'd been sort of taught that all religions are basically the same, and we're we're all in this kind of like pick and mix opportunity for different uh, ideas of what truth is. And Francis Schaeffer said. The problem is that we, 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 we brought about a separation between what he called um, upper story and lower story ideas. The down the lower story, um, what is solid, what you can sort of know and be confident about, there's scientific knowledge, there's um, the things that we, we, we're very happy to say that's either right or wrong. And then he said, in the upper story, we pushed all the kind of ideas of spirituality and religion. And we've drawn this kind of distinction between the two things, so that whereas we were, once upon a time, people were very, very dogmatic about what they did and didn't believe and what was and was not true, we now say everything that's up there is equally up for grabs. And you can kind of like have this sort of pick and mix approach to faith. Jesus didn't speak in hues of grey. For him, the dividing line between what is true and what is false was life and death, was in or out, was heaven or hell, was God or the devil. He didn't think of these things in a kind of mushy middle. And so, for Christ, the issue of truth-telling cuts right to the heart of of our faith and of what we believe. He saw a lie as a force for destruction. If you know the story of the Bible, where does it all go wrong? It it begins to go wrong with a lie. It begins to go wrong. See you later. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, they're cute, but they're annoying. Anyway. (laughs) For Jesus, 
who knows his Bible? It all goes wrong with a lie, doesn't it? The very beginning, Genesis 3, the Satan, Satan begins to talk to Eve and he tempts her and he deceives her and he lies to her. And a lie is the first seed that tumbles into all the destruction that we see in the world. So truth and lies are not a sort of casual issue to talk about. For Jesus, this is life and death. This is heaven and hell. This is the kingdom or not the kingdom. And obviously the flip side to that is that for him, the truth was a profoundly healing thing. He says in the same chapter in John 8, he says, um, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he says, if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus thought about people, the people he met and, and interacted with as being in slavery. In slavery in particular to lies. Things that they had believed that were not true about themselves, about God. And to know the truth, he said, is to experience freedom like you've never known before in your life. So for Christ, this comes right to the very heart of our faith. And in fact, if we're going to narrow this down a little bit more, it comes to the to who God is in himself. The Bible talks about God as the one who cannot lie. It says he is the fountain of all truth, essentially. In Hebrews chapter 6, this is how it's put in an extraordinary way. It says that when God desired to show his purpose, sorry, desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's to the Israelites, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, that's his word and his oath, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I'll explain this in just a moment. And then he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. If you were to ask me what what is the basic sickness that humans suffer with in their soul, it's that their, their souls have no anchor. They're not anchored to truth. That we are adrift. That without God, we don't know anything solid in this world. There's a pub up the road called the Anchor and Hope. And it's named really after this verse where he says that we have a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What's he talking about? He's saying that when God gave you this word, it was as though you had an anchor, or you could think of a grappling iron that was flung into the very courtroom of God and is attached to his throne, so that even if your life is falling apart around you, and everyone experiences turmoil, suffering, uncertainty about so many things in life, he says the one thing that you can be sure of is God's promise. People who've come to believe God's promise realize that they have found a foundation a bedrock foundation. This is why we began with Psalm 46, that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. 
He talks about the earth giving way and the mountains being cast into the sea. He says, whatever turmoil you're in, to have an anchor that goes into God's throne room means that you are you're attached to truth. There is something in life about which you can be certain. Which, of course, is the very opposite to what people think faith means. Usually when people want to sort of give a paraphrase to the word faith, they say it's a leap into the dark. And how often you see that on the lips of limp-wristed vicars on TV programs. Um, I'm talking about dramas, because they're always portrayed in very wimpy ways, aren't they? They just, they just take a leap into the dark. And actually, that's got no connection with what faith is in the Bible at all. Faith is believing that what God said is true. And that because he said it, he backs it up with his own character. Now, I say all that because I want to bring it around to this point. When Jesus is talking to you and me about becoming truth-tellers and being truthful people, what he's saying is... Your integrity as a person is a profoundly theological issue. I mean by that, that it's a way of reflecting the character of God. And let's get this down to the nitty-gritty of life. It comes down to things like whether you are good at keeping time. I used to be horrendous. I remember when I was at university, I used to... I lived over in Victoria, and I would walk up the river up to King's College. It would take me about half an hour to get there. And for some reason, if my lecture started at nine, actually it was with one particular lecturer. I had a lecturer who I really did not get along with. And uh, she taught the Old Testament, and uh, she didn't believe a word of it. And we used to argue all the time. It was really, really fun and also aggravating. And um, she disliked me. I disliked her. So I, would, I guess I had a kind of protest, but I would sort of turn up to her lectures quite late. And um, usually, sometimes 40 minutes late, which meant that I'd left the house 10 minutes after her lecture had begun. And she, she hated this, and rightly so. Rightly so. It was disrespectful and dishonoring. What changed that for me, from being a, a very, very poor timekeeper, to someone who suddenly respected that the clock matters, that time matters, a realization that God created time, and he's always on time. So when I'd understood the theology of it, I was able to connect it with my life and realize that if God's like that, I ought to be like that also. What about you? Or if we think about other examples in life, you could think about your, your deadlines. Um, on one of my first essays that I had to hand in, the same college, different teacher, um, I dropped it in the box 20 minutes after the, de- the deadline. Because the college I'd come from, the A-level college, they weren't really fussed about very hard deadlines. And uh, what I didn't realize was that they empty the box at 5 o'clock. So if you drop it in at 20 past 5, they're not going to pick it up until the next day. When I got it back in my pigeonhole, it had a massive red stamp on it that said, fail. I went to his office, he begged. <laughs> I begged that it would be uh, that my essay would be accepted, and I think I got some diminished grade in the end. But again, when you realise that God honours His commitments, you can't be concerned about holiness without also connecting it with these very real things in your life. You know, 
I, I talk about your day-to-day commitments. You know, if you're committed to a spouse, the profound and bedrock reason why you ought to be committed to your spouse is because God is committed to us. It's a theological thing. The reason I'm committed to church is not because I'm paid to be committed to church. I was committed long before I was ever paid, and I would not miss a Sunday because you're my family. And I, I, don't, I don't take it lightly if I'm sort of scooting off and around and about the place. No, no, no. This is where I ought to be with these people because God is committed to us and so am I. You could list all many, many examples. Jesus is concerned about reshaping the image of God in us. And if God is true to his word, yes means yes and no means no then if we have any concern to be like God, that ought to be true of us also, right? And the Bible says, imitate God. He's creating his image in us. Lastly, Jesus is concerned with relaying the word of God. What do I mean here? Well, I need you to recall that earlier in the chapter, one of the things that kind of sets the tone for what he's about to say He's really, he's really giving a manifesto for his kingdom, what his kingdom ought to look at like, and what his people look like. And one of the things he says about you, he says, you are salt and you are light. And it has partly to do with the idea of holiness, because salt brings purity, and light has always been a symbol for purity. But it also, as we, look, as we learned when we looked at that passage, it also has to do with the effect our lives have on the world around us. The salt is rubbed in to meat, isn't it? To make it kind of um, preserved. Light has a profoundly um, powerful effect because darkness can never beat light. Light always banishes darkness. Now, if that's what Jesus' concern is, that his people should have the effect they have on the world around them, then it follows that trustworthiness is part of that. We know that trustworthiness is an important thing. We know it in day-to-day life. Just yesterday when I was at a wedding, I heard the best man talk about the groom. And After ripping him to shreds, he kind of said some nice things about him. He said one of the things he said about him was, it was actually Jeremy who comes here, um, got married yesterday. And uh, one of the things he said about him was he had to write a reference. And one of the questions was, have you ever had cause to lack confidence in the applicant? And the best man could answer honestly, no, I have never had cause to lack confidence in this man. And we know when we look through the Bible that, that, that this is true of what God looks for in people and what he instructs us to look for. He looks for trustworthiness, reliability. It's there in Exodus 18 when Moses is appointing elders to govern the people of Israel. He says, look for trustworthy men. It's there in Acts 6 when they're looking for guys to distribute the, uh, the, uh, the benevolent fund to the widows. It says, look for reliable men full of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a connection I'm trying to make here. That if trustworthiness and reliability is important in just the ordinary stuff of life, like having friends who, who, can, who know that when you say you'll show up, you'll show up for that you, you turn up and do the work that you've been given. When you leave a job, you get a great reference. If it's important for just the ordinary stuff of life, how much more important is it for a Christian 
who carries on their shoulder the calling and mission that Jesus has put upon your life, which is to be a word bearer or a truth teller. When Paul was writing to one of the churches in 2 Corinthians, one of the points he wants to continually make all through this letter is that his integrity as a missionary is one of the things he most cherishes and counts as important. Because he knows that if he's to convince anyone that the things he says are true, he himself has to back that up by being a reliable, trustworthy person. So let me read you some of the verses that he gives to that. 2 Corinthians 1, he says, Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no? He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. So he says, you can know something about the God we serve by the fact that when I say yes, I mean it, and when I say no, I also mean that. He goes on a little bit further on in the letter, just in the next chapter. He says, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. So guys who were just preaching to earn money. He says, we're not peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, we speak in Christ. So he's saying that somehow there's a connection between my character as a witness of the resurrection of Jesus and whether or not you believe what I have to say. If I'm a trustworthy person in the rest of my life, how much more easily for you to believe that when I talk about Jesus being raised from the dead, I'm clearly not just inventing things off the top of my head. He goes on in, in chapter 4 and says um, that we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we'd commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He's saying... That we're not deceptive people. We're very, we live open lives before you. That you can trust what we have to say. And then lastly in chapter 6, he says, he speaks at length. I won't read all the verses that connect with this. But he talks about how his entire life backs up what he's been preaching. He says, why? So that we can put no, one, no obstacle in anyone's way. He doesn't want anyone to trip up that when they hear the truth about Jesus, they can't accept it because you're an irritating person or because you're a pampered person or because you are um, an emotional person or something like this. So he, he says, no, no, but we, we remove all those obstacles so that people can actually believe what we have to say. And he talks about the... In going through endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, imprisonments, beatings, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. He's saying all that we've been through gives credibility that we are suffering for something that we believe is true. And one of the things he, he says here is by truthful speech and by the power of God. What I'm trying to help you to see, friends, is that of your speech in ordinary life either makes you a more effective or a less effective witness to what you believe about Christ. And how much more is this the case when you consider what is the message that we, we're telling people about Jesus or about God? Isn't it that he is trustworthy? Isn't it that you can 
cast your life upon him and know with certainty that, that he will save you in eternity. You remember that famous hymn, On Christ, the solid rock I stand. No, other, all other ground is sinking sand. When you're telling people to trust in Jesus, you're saying, you've been stood on sinking sand up to this point. I want to invite you to come and stand on the rock. There's a verse in there that goes, His oath, His covenant, His blood surrounds me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. That is the message that we believe and preach, isn't it? That God is reliable. That when he promises something, he delivers. And that when he promises that he'll save you through Jesus, you can bet your life on it. Because that is exactly what the gospel calls you to do. And so how important is it for us as Christians that if we're talking about a message of trust, that we ourselves embody that as trustworthy people. I think that is why when Jesus is talking to his disciples, saying, I want you to be salt and light. Here's one of the ways in which you can be salt and light. He says, let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Jesus wants to search our hearts. And yeah, he brings conviction that we're not always truth tellers, and we don't always have integrity, that what's inside is what comes out of our lips and our actions. But the gospel is this, that he reshapes us and remolds us and makes us into the image of Christ. And Christ was a truth teller. No one ever accused him or could ever solidly accuse him of being a liar.